Hi, it's Laura. Welcome to another episode of Future Tripping. This week, we get to talk with Stacy Moniz. Stacy is from Maui, where she's worked in a number of different fields, whether that's doing domestic violence support and prevention or her current work with a cancer foundation. I had the privilege of working with Stacy years ago in Hawaii. She's a beloved member of the community, and with things remaining as hard as they are after the fires, I'm just so appreciative that she took the time for this conversation. I do want to thank our listeners in advance for your grace and understanding as there was a very large youth gathering outside her office advocating for water rights in Hawaii. So you will hear that throughout the interview. We've done what we can in post, but know that what Stacy has to share with us will come through beautifully, even amidst the sound of very enthusiastic youth organizing. Just a reminder that we'd love to hear from you. And if you have any questions for us, you can find us on our site at traumastewardship.com and through Instagram at Future Tripping with Laura. Welcome to another episode of Future Tripping. Today, I have the honor of being joined by my colleague, Stacy Moniz. Stacy, thank you so much for joining us. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. Stacy, you are on Maui. And you have been living through the aftermath of the fires. And before the fires, as you and I have talked about, there was lots that was going on for you and your community. And of course, the work you do. And then came these devastating fires. And now there is the tending to that on top of everything else that you and your colleagues and your relations are tending to. So I'm wondering if you could share with us a bit about, let's just start with how you're doing. How are you feeling? How are your spirits? Where are you at in your mind? How are you? You know, thank you. That's a good question. You know, um, it's hard here. You know, you ask people, how are you doing? And it's a scary question because some people have lost so much. I haven't lost anybody, anything. So I'm doing good, but I'm still affected by the fires. I'm tired. It's starting to get uh, weary. And I am not in any way directly working in the fire zone or, or working directly in any of the hubs or at the hotels where people are living. And like many people here, you know, we have our, our jobs. If we're lucky, we still have our jobs. Uh, A lot of people in visitor industry lost their jobs. Um, Then we have our families and our responsibilities. Uh, We say Kuleana here, which is a much larger level of responsibility uh, to our families and our extended families. And then we're all volunteering on top of that to do different things to help the people in Lahaina, whether like we've been raising, um, doing drives for food and needed items at the um, at the different locations. People need certain laundry soap. It's a big need. Um, so we do gather those things and take them over. And then on top of that, just doing the day-to-day, it starts to get wearisome. So sports, you know, my grandkids are soccer players, and so there's a lot of soccer happening still. Uh, Lahaina Luna just went back to school and So there's some, even in the joyful things, uh, there's a lot of sadness, the people that aren't there now. Mm -hmm. So thanks for asking how I'm doing. And that's a really long answer to say, uh, we're doing as well as 
can be expected, I would say. Yeah. 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 Well, I've been thinking about you every single day since yeah. this happened. Cece, I know you're such an expansive systems thinker, and you have dedicated so much in your life to working for social and environmental justice. I'm wondering, for folks who might not have as much insight into this, can you share with us what has, in your opinion, contributed to the fires not simply being devastating because of all the ways they were devastating, but also how much colonization has contributed to the impact and supremacy has contributed to the impact. And can you just share with us your insights into that? Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, prior to contact, um, Hawaii, or the proper way to say it is Hawaii, was a self-sustaining, very rich um, place to live. Uh, They estimate that there were a million people living here prior to uh, whether it's British or American contact. And, um, you know, they... the they had a system here called the Ahopua'a system, which is uh, land management or land um, use that went from the top of the mountains down to the ocean, from the mountain to the sea, and that people stewarded those lands. Um, and people at the top of the mountain grew certain foods and trees for canoes. And then as you come down the mountain, like with the water, The water is life is a very strong saying here in Hawaii that uh, you follow the water. So the water would come down the mountain and nourish everything and everyone. And as you got to the lowlands, different kinds of foods grew there. And then at the ocean where the rivers met the ocean, there were fish ponds. And so it was a very rich, lush um, place to live. And then... Over time, as Hawaii was colonized, people came in, businesses came in and saw opportunities for growing sugar, which was a very big um, emerging thing. Sugar was very, uh, you could make a lot of money growing sugar. And we could grow sugar all year round. And so we grew sugar and we grew pineapple and They brought in people, so they, meaning British and American colonizers, brought in immigrants from China, from Japan, from the Philippines, from Portugal. Different people had different skill sets. So my ancestors are Japanese and Portuguese and were brought in to help these systems, these uh, plantations, which sounds very familiar, right? The plantations and... um, similar people. And uh, I went to plantation in the South and they're growing sugar. And I was like, kind of blown away. Um, I thought they grew cotton, but we grew sugar because sugar was a very hot item. So as sugar stabilized and became part of the economy here, then came tourism. Now tourism to this day is the money generator. And so when I was a kid, they were building hotels and condos and time, well, timeshares came later, uh, but 
this state that became a state in 1959. So there are a lot of people still alive today who remember before Hawaii was a state. And um, so as we progressed, and I'm using progressed mm -hmm. in quotations, mm -hmm. we just like threw all of our eggs into the tourism basket. So today, um, I think in like 2016, the last sugar mill closed, our pineapples gone, the, even uh, macadamia nuts can be grown cheaper in other places. Um, so uh, our big industry is tourism. And anyone who lives in a tourist-based economy will know that tourism is an extractive, it takes, it depletes, it does very little to put back in besides money. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> And so, but our state continues to invest millions of dollars in tourism. Mm -hmm. So during COVID, you know, everything shut down during COVID. And um, it would have been a great opportunity to look at diversifying our revenue here. And, um, but like a lot of Americanized communities, we missed that opportunity. And here came, after COVID, the tourists came back and everybody thought that was great went back to normal um but there have been there are definitely definitely strong hawaiian groups um who have since the 70s been reclaiming culture land language um they started uh, language schools uh, punana leo and uh, kulakaya puni that's the kids that were outside my office a little while ago, all speaking Hawaiian. Um, and the language has come back. The culture, certainly hula is here. Uh, even our voyaging canoe, Hokulea, that did a voyage around the entire planet using stars and um, ocean currents to navigate. Um, so these are parts of that kind of uh, revolution, if you will, resurrection. I like the term revolution, but not everybody likes that. It seems a little radical. I don't know. Uh, but it is one of the strengths of this state. Uh, there's a saying in Hawaii that our island is our canoe, and our canoe is our island because Hawaiians were voyagers, Polynesians were voyagers, and they would go for months on a canoe, and all you have is what you brought on the canoe. And you might not like everybody every single day of that trip, but you're depending on each other to make it to the next place. And so living on islands, it's very much like living on a canoe, Back in the day, you really had to depend on each other. And it's still true, but we get, um, we're colonized to believe that we're Americans, we're individuals, and we're independent. But we really, if the mats and containers and the shipping containers and the barges stop coming to Hawaii, 90% of our food comes from the barges. When we are capable of growing our own food to supply for 1 million people. Uh, 
but we don't do that anymore. So um, on Maui, we're less, um, we don't have the military as strongly as, say, Oahu does uh, in Honolulu and on the island of Oahu. There's a huge military presence, um, lest we forget that we're colonized. Um, so we don't have that level of um, military presence. But, I mean, just last year or two years ago, they realized that uh, the military was poisoning our water uh, on Oahu. And similarly here on Maui now, because of the fires, apparently when the fires burned, we had, everybody focuses on the fires in Lahaina, but there were also huge fires up country on the mountain on the other part of the island um, that same morning. Actually, they started up there first. We had a hurricane. It was kind of crazy, but the fire started up country. And so in two different locations on our island, the fires raged so hot that the plastic inside our water reservoirs leached some kind of toxic thing, plastic thing that uh, so now the water's no good in both these areas. People are having to ship in water. And anyway, it's kind of a disaster. And water is life. As many, many, many indigenous people know, you cannot live without water. But also as indigenous people, Hawaiian said, you cannot own water, but Americans own water. So here we are. Um so there's a lot of that. Like, that's why I'm saying, like, there's so many mm, factors that go into play. Colonization, tourism, corporations, uh, capitalism, and uh, what we call here um, more of a plantation mentality, which maybe is familiar to some people also on the continent about how so many of our families were employed by the sugar companies or the pineapple companies. We were employed. They provided our medical care. In some places, they provided our housing. They provided our everything. Our, and so we owe a lot to the plantations, and we have this mentality that um, the plantations will take care of us. And that sort of transferred over to tourism, too. People work for a year, I can't even tell you, like my sister-in-law just retired from one of the big hotels after 40 years. She spent her whole whole life working there. But during COVID, she, it, she felt they were family, but they didn't act like family. When COVID hit, they shut everything down and there was nothing left for the employees. But our plantation mentality still has us so beholden. And so we hold up these businesses like they're going to take care of us and Time and again, especially since COVID, we're seeing that really they don't. So we got to take care of ourselves. And um, if I can say so, during this uh, aftermath of the fires, that's exactly what we're seeing. The beauty and the strength of the people of Hawaii is incredible. They set up immediately. We couldn't get into Lahaina, but some people were going around the back road, which is very treacherous. I do not recommend that road. And I have lived here all my life, but that road scares me. Um, but big trucks were taking in water and gasoline and generators and um, food because people were sitting stranded in parking lots, afraid to go anywhere because there were down power lines. Fires were 
everywhere. And they started setting up what they call Kanaka hubs, which is Kanaka means Hawaiian person. And uh, they set up Kanaka Costco and just had all kinds of resources available to those that could get there. Mm -hmm. Then they started going door to door looking for people that were trapped in their houses because even outside of Lahaina proper, uh, people in outlying areas all the way to Kapalua had no power. They had no internet. They had no water. And so everything had to be brought in, including tankers of gas so you could run your generators. Mm-hmm. So uh, the Hawaiian style, I, I can't even tell you how amazing it is to see still. Uh, there are many hubs set up upcountry in Lahaina in town because now everybody from Lahaina is displaced Mm -hmm. so they're all over the island so there are hubs everywhere places for kids to get things places for adults groceries whatever it is you need we were inundated with clothes and um, that's just people on the island and then once the word got out to the rest of the world I mean Amazon was shipping by the barges, I'm pretty sure. And very quickly, too, I got to say, things arrived well and quickly, uh, given everything that's going on here. So So can you talk a little bit about, you said earlier that weariness, and I know one of the things that can be so hard in the aftermath of disasters is the ability to continue to cultivate stamina for oneself and then, you know, at least in the United States, there's such a short attention span for grief and for loss and for when folks are in pain. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about what that's like to navigate your own fatigue, your own weariness. And then there was a lot of attention on Maui yeah. for a bit and then less so. And what is that? been feeling like to you when that recedes? Yeah, you know, and I'm not the only one feeling that for sure. Uh, Because we're tourist-based and we're capitalists and we lost a huge income generator, quote, unquote, I know for people everywhere seeing the videos, hearing people's stories, like it's so tragic. And it captured everyone's attention, and justifiably so, um, because it really was an epic proportion disaster. But now, you know, they're open parts of the island up, uh, and the tourists are back. And we try to ask tourists to be respectful, right, everywhere from on the airplanes to the... Um, to the rental cars, they're all asking the tourists, just please be respectful. There's really no reason for you to go into Lahaina. You could go past Lahaina. You can go to there's the rest. The whole rest of the island's open, and yet um, the kind of attention that we're getting now, now that um, is like all these uh, tourists that are stopping to take videos of this burn zone and selfies and. It feels very disrespectful. And for a lot of people, even people that work in the tourist industry are feeling like it's too soon to open 
to all the tourists because of exactly the behaviors that we're seeing. But just like during COVID, we really can't stop the tourists. It's a fine balance. Um, we do need to have some tourism and you can't um, regulate how people act. So I think the heartbreaking part is for the, the residents of Lahaina who have to drive past tourists. So one other thing to consider is that the island is opening up to tourists, but the burn zone or sort of this ground zero of Lahaina is only opening up in sections. So there are only several sections that are open for the families to go back into their homes to get their belongings and to go see if there's anything left there that didn't get wrecked in the fire. So we have people, residents, who are still not able to go into their homes and the tourists are taking pictures of it and uh, because there's a road above Lahaina that you can, it's the bypass road, so you can drive on that road and get videos and take pictures. Um, and so they're seeing that happening and, um, and yet they're not able to go home and get their things. So it's, it's hard. And I think um, it's hard on, on both sides because I know a lot of people that work in tourism and they're, they're having a hard time the numbers are down, restaurants are closed, a lot of businesses have decided to close down because they were fully um, uh, based in tourism, but um, it's hard to find that balance of being respectful, still come to Maui, but uh, not a lot of people are ready to go to work. You know, I don't think people realize the level of trauma that people experienced just getting out of Lahaina during the fires. Um, I have two staff members who lost everything in the fire and drove out of Lahaina and are still having nightmares and having a hard time sleeping. And um, they were, luckily, they decided to... Um, instead of going and staying at the hotels, like a lot of people were offered to stay in the hotels, um, they stayed with her mom, like a lot of people do, they stayed with their family, but that's not a long-term solution. Um, but she really focused her energies on finding a new place to live because now there's, I think, thousands of families that are going to be looking for places to live right now. So fortunately she got a place to live, but, I mean, the trauma's still there. Um, so for me, you know, I didn't lose anything, but I do see the impacts of, and, and this is just the beginning, August, September, October, just two and a half months. We're going to be um, in this state of people not having somewhere to live for quite some time. We already had a housing shortage before the fires, uh, and it's so expensive. Uh, my staff member is paying double what she paid before the fires. So, uh, you know, she's lucky she still has a job, and I don't know. I, I just, when I think about when you expand on that, 
times, I think it's 5,000 people are displaced. That's a lot of people that are still traumatized. Yeah, absolutely. Stacey, I'm so sorry for so much of what you're sharing in terms of folks acting so out of their integrity as they visit the island. And I'm really struck by what you're talking about in terms of extraction. And I think that extraction that comes with certain economies, like you're saying, tourism, combined with when there is a climate-related crisis like this, combined with our short attention span and how grief illiterate we are in our country. It just all contributes from what I see to such a feeling of isolation Mm -hmm. and how hard then communities and, you know, you all have to work to fight against that isolation and to stay connected when it can feel like so much is continuing to be, taken. And I'd like to think we could set a high bar for, you know, if folks are going to continue to participate in tourism, there is a way to do that mindfully, thoughtfully, intentionally, generously. And when just any time, and certainly when you're surviving a trauma, long-term trauma, it just takes one of those experiences of seeing somebody act you know, beneath themselves and out of their integrity to just have you feeling such a sense of despair and disheartenedness about the state of everything. And I think that that also can contribute to so much isolation where it just, you just feel like you just don't have, just don't have the energy to continue to be out there in the world and assuming well and continue to put one foot in front of the other. So I'm really struck by what you're talking about in terms of the extraction. I love how you say that too, that if people could come and be generous and be, and I'm not saying with money, but just with their, you know, common sense. And there is a new tourism being rebuilt uh, after the COVID. And I know that the Hawaii Visitors Bureau has been looking at responsible tourism. That was a term that we've been saying needs to happen more and more. Maui's been a real leader in that. Like we did our, the first um, sunscreen ban. So you have to use sunscreen that doesn't have certain things that kill all of our reefs. And now that's caught on statewide, but you go to the market and there's just shelves and shelves and shelves of this toxic sunscreen still on the shelves that you can buy it, but we're trying to ban it completely uh, because we recognize that sunscreen is bad for the environment. It's bad for the ocean. Use the sunscreen with all the toxins in it when you're staying on land or when you're going hiking, but not when you get in the ocean. But then they're trying to take it to another level where it's... um, a little bit like volunteerism, but not quite. Um, but they're just trying to share with the tourists before they get here that there are things that you can do that would be helpful. Uh, don't more than just 
don't step on the reefs or um, the kind of more common sense things, but maybe common sense isn't always quite so common. Um, and so I know that the tourism industry is looking at ways to get tourists to participate in activities that educate them. Now, we're going to have to shift that to people in Lahaina. Um, to, I, I would imagine that people at in New York City may have felt very similarly after September 11th that people are being so disrespectful to a place where I lost my loved ones um, and that we had to educate ourselves if you we went to New York to not be like that. I think the same thing is going to have to happen here as well, that uh, we have such a morbid curiosity, human beings, like, um, and I, I don't know if it's all human beings, but I know for sure Americans do, like, we want to go to the place where this grisly thing happened and take pictures of it, and it's just not appropriate. So how do you teach that to mm. the masses? Right. Uh, yeah. I, I don't have the answer, but I know that they are trying. Yeah. I do know that. Yeah. And Stacey, something you and I have connected on a lot is this idea of how harmful it can be to compare one's own situation to other situations and the minimizing that can come from that. So, you know, when we talk about minimizing, it's not context, it's not perspective, it's not gratitude. It's instead where we start to put pain on a hierarchy and suffering can, I mean, let's assume it's never intentional, but really unconsciously in many ways become a competition. And then there can be this experience that happens after climate related disasters, after mass shootings. There's so many different examples we could pull in where folks are really harsh with themselves in terms of who am I to complain? And then they can, unfortunately, what can add to the suffering after a catastrophe is then when folks start becoming harsh with each other of oh. like, kind of, who do you think you are, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what that's been like for you to wade through those waters for your own self um, you know, survivor's guilt is something people talk a lot about. Um, mm -hmm. And then also just what you're seeing, because I know what you and I have connected on in the past is trying to honor the trauma that happened and then do anything we can to not have there be additional layers of suffering. And minimizing is one of those pieces, I think, that really can contribute to that. Oh, my gosh. You know, and like I said, I... I see people doing that already. Like uh, my sister-in-law's family is all from Lahaina and they've lost so much, their home there. And, um, and so my sister-in-law lives up country where I live, which we had our own fires up there and we were very um, shaken up by that. And, but our houses didn't burn down either. And so, we often will say, gosh, you know, I don't have anything to, um, why do I have PTSD when I smell smoke? I didn't escape from a burning house or, um, but it, it still does bother us, you know, and I, even a barbecue getting started up 
and people, I notice it's not just me. There are other people that are like, well, something's burning. And um, we're all kind of walking on eggshells, but trying not to compare um, our loss to other people's losses. And I also see um, a lot of people that are working so tirelessly to help everyone um, to sort of mitigate that survivor's guilt, I think, you know, or trying to, um, trying to soothe that part of ourselves that feels guilty and feels like we have to help because, uh, and, and then it gets extreme. And I just had a conversation with a friend of mine and I said, you know, I just feel like I'm not doing a good job at anything right now. I'm not being a good uh, parent, grandparent, worker, boss, um, volunteer, organizer. I just feel like totally ineffective on every level. I'm doing a terrible job at everything. And I know that's not true. And my, but uh, you know, consciously I know that, but, and my daughter said, well, you know, for, for you, 60% might be somebody else's 100%. So because we have these high expectations of ourselves as well. And so I said that to a friend of mine who really was so grateful for that. And I said, oh, man, that's not me. I didn't have that in my pocket today, but my daughter did. And lucky we are surrounded by people who can remind us that even if 60% is just 60%, it's okay. It's plenty. Um, but we have this expectation that we're going to do everything and feed everyone and um and then, you know, this other dynamic that happens, which I think is probably the most heartbreaking of all, is um, when we start to look at each other and blame each other for whatever's happening. So, for example, there are a lot of people who took leadership in the early days after the fire, who set up these hubs or who got everybody to a safe place and took leadership and it's not easy to be a leader right now. Um, and because our leaders are getting attacked and, um, you know, people who may have raised money, there were a lot of fundraisers that were very, very successful and people are asking, well, what happened to the money? Maybe they're stealing the money. And, you know, instead of trusting each other and realizing that, um, so say I raised a million dollars I don't know. I don't think the average person realizes how much work goes into distributing a million dollars, even to people who really, really need it. Um, you want to come up with a fair system to do that. And so there's so many people who are under attack for doing the right things for the right reasons. And that really breaks my heart. Um, I'm hoping that as things settle down, we're going to see uh, some equilibrium, right? Like, boom, this happens, everybody's compassion rushes in. And then after the compassion wears out, now we start blaming each other, pointing fingers. And then hopefully after that calms down, we come back to this place of reality of we're living on an island. Our island is our canoe and our canoes are our island and we're going to work together. We have to work together to make it through this. There's We can't do it alone and stop kind of picking on each other and, and blaming each other for a natural disaster like there was nothing we could do I mean I'm sad to 
to see people attack each other. Yeah. Yeah. And Stacey, with what you're sharing there, you know, what I know you know so well are the dynamics of grief and loss and trying to recover from trauma. And when it just feels so, when our bodies and our hearts feel so uninhabitable, that it's just this place that frequently we go as humans is get super in our head and then we get very reductive. And then it's that whole binary of us versus them and good versus yes. bad and mm-hmm. the negativity bias that comes in and the not assuming well. And even though we know that that is so common, of course it, can still be so painful and damaging. I'm wondering if you're finding amongst your peers and your colleagues and your friends and your loved ones, are there conversations happening like about, hey, (laughs) we've all been through a lot. Let's try to not make things worse. And in fact, this is part of how internalized depression works is we're meant to turn on each other, like to kind of hold it in. I mean, I know that you have an extraordinary amount of awareness, insight into this, and you might be an outlier in that regard. I'm wondering if these conversations are happening or if it's just so exhausting and so depleting and it's kind of hard to pull back a bit and see what's unfolding in terms of the way that oppression works and how that rolls out. You know, I think that there are so many people here that are working in anti-colonization work, um, land back, women's rights, equal rights, uh, Hawaiian rights. But when we're locked, I, I don't want to say locked into a trauma response, but when we're reacting out of this trauma response, I think we go to not that like higher consciousness thinking. I think we end up, it's a lot easier to blame each other. It's not helpful, but you get a lot more support. Like it's more common. So people can relate on that level versus if you try to raise the conversation to you know, this is all part of the colonization and we have Hawaiians versus Hawaiians. And if we all just join together and the Hawaiian movement's been around for a long time and it's so fractured as a result of all the colonization and, um, and you can get it on some level and then completely forget all about it when it's you. And right now it's so many people and it's so many um hawaiians versus hawaiians Mm -hmm. and it's devastating to watch and it's just one more way that the the systems are gonna take it all away like while hawaiians are fighting hawaiians they're quietly buying up lahaina all these outside interests, these uh, mega corporations, capitalism, nameless faces are buying it up because the Hawaiian and the Hawaiians are going to lose out again. So I don't have the answer. God, mm-hmm. I wish I did. It'd be so wonderful. Mm-hmm. And I think somewhere in all of the activism are many answers. Um, 
But when you take away land Mm -hmm. that was overpriced to begin with because Mm -hmm. it was Lahaina Mm -hmm. and underwater, because now talk about climate change, the water levels are rising. And so all of French Street was going to be underwater anyway. But so now nobody's going to be able to build on what used to be the ocean side of French Street Mm -hmm. because that's all was disappearing already. Mm -hmm. Um, so then you're going to have to move the road up. Like, you know, this is going to take a long time to figure out and it's going to require a lot of smart people to figure it out. Engineers and, um, also climate experts and planners and, uh, and I'm sure they've been thinking about it. Um, we should have known, not should have, we knew that this could happen. Um, and we, I don't mean me, but we as a community, like our leaders, fire, all said, Lahaina is a very old oceanfront town. There are no fire breaks. There should be um, more water reservoirs just in case. Um, so a lot of people who know things like friends of mine who sat on the fire commission or who worked for the fire department, said Lahaina was always at risk. Uh, and so we, it, even if we knew it was happening, we let it happen. So that, I believe, is part of this whole kind of capitalistic every man for himself mm-hmm. kind of thing instead of looking at it as a community. Mm-hmm. And um, I know that there are people who will never be able to afford to buy their land or build on their land Mm -hmm. again uh some of these places were upside down you Mm -hmm. know they're they owed more money than their insurance will cover Mm -hmm. and um a lot of these homes had multi-generational families living in them Mm -hmm. so you've got a lot of one house might have housed 12 people Mm -hmm. and so now now what do we all do Mm -hmm. um you know what also burned affordable housing uh, apartments mm-hmm. and uh, county-owned affordable housing? They just bought this whole condominium complex and turned it into affordable housing, mm-hmm. and that burned down. Mm-hmm. They just built. So these were people that didn't have a lot to begin right. with. Right. So, yeah, we're, we're going to struggle. I'm struck by what you're saying, Stacey, what you're saying earlier in terms of even if you try to elevate the conversation amongst peers, colleagues, family, friends, like, hey, let's remember turning on each other, not helpful. Let's remember, like, bring this from, let's think about this in terms of oppression, internalized oppression. This is one of the very powerful dynamics that happens. Then the oppressive group steps back and those of us in those communities instead, you know, do each other in. And you connecting that then with there were these warning signs, which so often there are, whether that is climate related catastrophes or other things that happen in communities and workplaces. And I know this is not everywhere, just in the United States, we're so reactive and what it takes to try to be proactive and preemptive. It's just, 
exhausting. And so frequently, like you're saying, that falls on the shoulders of folks who are already historically marginalized, historically oppressed, historically underserved. Yep. Like how many of those fire commission meetings are you going to, you know, and trying to be like, hey, we should pay attention to this. Focus up, focus up, focus up. How many parents have gone and sat on school board meetings over and over and over with concerns and then, God forbid, a mass shooting happens, right? Like, how many exactly. workplaces have there been colleagues who have said, we should pay attention to this, we should really pay attention to this, and the leadership won't pay attention to it, and then, God forbid, something happens. So that whole experience of being in a reactive culture, mm -hmm. and then when, God forbid, something happens it falling disproportionately on folks, as you're saying, who already were historically struggling because of oppression. Yeah. It is just, you know, I it, going back to what you said earlier with the 60% and the hundred percent. And I just think, you know, anybody on Maui who's like still getting out of bed in the morning. I mean, any <laughs> of you who are still able to, make it through a day where you're, you know, eating something, hydrating something, being yeah. kind to one person, like just deciding you're going to go another day and try to get through another day. I mean, it, to me, that feels so Herculean to have the strength yeah. to do that because part of what we look at with trauma is there's, this isn't the right way to think about it exactly, but there is, is trauma where we could have never imagined like th th there's just no way you could have ever seen it coming. And then there's trauma where, Oh, like we knew or we could have, or if only, and that to your point adds so much exhaustion and so many fraught feelings, I think. Yeah. You know, I was talking to a former fire captain or something and, and he said, that his guilt around knowing that this could happen um, eats him up. And I thought, gosh, you know, but in your time, weren't you trying to raise the, you know, raise the awareness? And he was like, oh, yeah, and they still are. And I said, gosh, you know, so then what do you do? Like exactly what you're saying. How, what does it take to get the attention of the leaders. And I hope that this fire has gotten the leadership's attention. But, you know, we had a fire similar caused by a hurricane. Didn't kill anybody, I don't think, but it burned about the same amount of land in Lahaina. But it was more up on the mountain. So less um, homes were damaged. But there were still, we still lost, I think, 20 Homes. That was just in 2018. It's before the pandemic. So could we have, after that fire, maybe during the pandemic, taken a look at that? Probably. Should we have? Probably. Did we? I don't think so, because here we are again. And uh, because um, I just read a story that said that they're going to release the findings from the 2018 fire soon it said soon now the mayor the mayor who's mayor now was not the mayor then and i think that's part of the problem is how political it is and if it's not on your important agenda um but 
you know, you can kick the can kind of down the road a bunch, but somebody's going to pay the price. And then whoever's in charge, it's like that past the potato, rotten potato. And when the timer goes off, if you're stuck with the tragedy, now it's your problem. And this is a really horrible example of that. But I think that's exactly what happened. You know, our leadership knew we were vulnerable to fires happening out there and we chose to do whatever we did and didn't do what we didn't do. And, you know, here we are. Mm-hmm. Hopefully we take some action now. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't feel so hopeful about that because of our, uh, it's such a hard, it's going to cost a lot of money to do. Yeah. And we're already short on money yeah. because we've lost all the tourists and the revenue stream. Yeah. And, uh, I want to ask you a question. Like, what, what, if you can say anything to your loved ones near you, your colleagues, your community, what, what would you most want folks to keep in mind as these next few weeks and a few months go by? And then I want to ask you for folks who are not in there with you, have that intimacy, and many, many, many people do care very much about about Hawaii and what's happening and might know much less about what could be helpful. So not in any way, is it your responsibility to educate on any level? I just am wondering if you could share anything with those close to you, what would you want folks to keep in mind? And then I'll ask you about other folks. You know, I, I struggle with this too, which is that um, we don't have to do everything every day for everybody. Um, That part of our job is taking care of ourselves. And we sacrifice ourselves sometimes in the attempt to help other people. And I, and I get that. And that's something that's really valued here in Hawaii is, this um, helping other people and um, not being so focused on ourselves. That's a very strong value that we have in many of the cultures here. You know, we're um, like a melting pot of cultures and we all kind of fall into this one local culture, which is many, it's Hawaiian, it's um, Asian, it's, Portuguese, Filipino, Polynesian, like there's so many nationalities here. And so many of our cultures put others first. And I get that. But if you don't take care of ourselves first, then we really are, can't help other people. And and it's really a hard one because for a lot of us, and I know this happens during tragedies, um, that Losing ourselves in the service of others is a is a very strong value, and it also it feeds your soul for a period of time. It feels good. It feels so good. You're just kind of like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I'm here to help people, and it feels really good. And then, like anything, um, it can become depleting and start taking away from other parts of your life, and so then. 
so we got to find that balance. And so I'm not telling people not to go and help take care of everybody out there. I think that's still important, but that we can take a break and find that whatever it is, go to the ocean, go to the river, go to the mountain, whatever feeds your soul back again and take a break and take a break from each other. Um, and also, you know, to trust each other. That's the hardest part right now. I feel like a lot of people don't trust each other because some of us, not me, but some people have really lost a lot. Some people have lost everything. And so it makes us want to hold on to things tighter but to trust each other, to love each other, and to assume the best of each other. And I know it's not easy. And, you know, there's a saying about assuming good intentions. And even if somebody's not doing things the way you might do them, that's not wrong. And that they're not stealing. or um, And that I don't know how to say that uh, we need to trust more in each other than there are a lot. There's a lot of mistrust for the government right now. And I understand that. And, um, and I support that too, but that we really do have to trust each other if we're not, especially if we're not trusting the government and we're not, um, using those resources because we're going to run out of helping each other like that. We're, we're, we're going to have to, fill that tank back up of, um, you know, the positivity and the goodwill, um, just like a gas tank's going to deplete after a while. So find ways to replenish that and remember each other in positive ways. I feel like the negativity sucks our energy so much. Um, Yeah, of course. Thank you so much, Stacey. You've been so generous with your time. Okay, last question for you. We like to share with folks who listen to our podcasts really clear windows in to how all of our guests sustain themselves. So I know these are extraordinary circumstances for you. I am wondering what a few of your non-negotiables are that you might engage in every day or every day ish that are helping you (laughs) sustain yourself. Like what practices do you return to that you find to be really helpful? You know, I love um, getting manicures and pedicures, like those kind of like physical self care things. And, but I really, what's been working for me, the, the best like that feels kind of topical sometimes like you know it's nice but does it really um i think it's a good way to take a break from things though um but i have found i have such amazing friends and even like my daughter who in her wisdom reminded me uh, not to be so hard on myself so surrounding myself with people that i care about that also have that higher conscience, Um, you know, everything doesn't fall apart all at once, you know, in our lives, like typically when the fire burns down a part of our community, there are other people that are doing well, so we can all pitch in to take, to help each other in that way. And 
I use my friends in that way too, because sometimes like I haven't gotten anything left. So I'll go volunteer on my friend's farm. And while I'm volunteering on her farm, we're talking story and we're getting, I'm filling my tank up, even though I'm helping her, quote unquote, she's really helping me and her farm and her land. And, you know, I probably have to say that my number one respite for myself is my garden, but I also volunteer on other people's gardens Mm -hmm. because um, they come with friends with wisdom and uh, who might have a little more to give today than I do and uh, help fill up my tank again. So um, I strongly recommend the, the buddy system. Make sure your friends aren't worse off and check in on your friends too. Like when I'm feeling better, I'm now I can be there for people too. So um we do a lot of amazing things here in Hawaii that gather. So I think that's helpful. Yeah. Thank you so much, Stacey. Thank Aww. you for your generosity and taking the time. I know there are so many demands on your time and that having like the energy to get through one's day can be touch and go sometimes. So I really appreciate you being willing to share with us and offer your insights and your lived experience. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I will continue to hold you in my thoughts every day. I'm so grateful. And thank you for sharing all your resources with us too. It's, um, it's a reminder of that connection because the day that you emailed me, I had literally just been looking you up on the internet, trying to share some of your resources with my friends and colleagues. And then you reached out and the timing was so perfect. I'm so grateful to you oh, and Stacey. your generosity. Thank you. I treasure our years of friendship and colleagueship yes, and yes. just know we'll continue to hold you. I and we will continue to hold you and your communities in our thoughts. And thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Thank you. Our podcast, Future Tripping, is a Trauma Stewardship Institute production. I, Laura, am your host and producer. Our incredible executive producer and sound engineer is Olivia P. Sunier, without whom this podcast would not be possible. It's edited and mixed by Tom Stiles with original music by Cameron DeVore. Our graphic designer is Evie Burroughs-White. Thank you for downloading and subscribing. And as always, please give us a holler with any questions or suggestions. We can be found at traumastewardship.com and on Instagram at Future Tripping with Laura. There you can find both an email and phone number where you can ask your questions of our upcoming guests. I am grateful you joined us. Please remember, however your overwhelm is feeling today, you're not alone. You're in good company, and I look forward to being with you here on Future Tripping again next week. Mm